The flight deck is made possible by the generous donors supporting the Museum of Flight. You can support this podcast and the Museum of Flight's other initiatives across the United States and the world by visiting museumofflight.org slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Sean Mobley, and we have a weird and wonderful episode in store for you today from the depths of our collections. Some of our staff have pulled out some of the most interesting, obscure, odd, (laughs) and inspiring items they could find and are going to share them with you today. Now, all of these objects can be found on the Museum of Flight Collections Instagram. That's at Team Off Collections on Instagram, which you should absolutely follow if you're interested in both incredible finds from our collection and a behind-the-scenes look into the archives of our museum. See stuff that's probably never going to be on display. Of course, podcasts being an audio medium, I'll tell you up front that I've gathered links to the objects our archivists describe and have included them in the show notes, which you can find at museumofflight.org slash podcast. So for those of you playing the home game, which is all of you, you can follow along and see what they're talking about for yourself. Instead of being one long interview today, I have a series of short interviews with the various staff that give you a little insight into the object they chose and its story. With that, I'll turn it over to our collections team. I'm Allie Lane. I'm the digital asset coordinator. Um, I pretty much oversee our digital collections materials and the technical infrastructure that supports those materials. Uh, Allie, why don't you talk about the object that you chose to share on this uh, podcast today? I did a post about the Frederick Nelson Atwood Ledger, which is one of our oldest items in the collection. It's not quite the oldest, as you know from the oldest item episode, but it's definitely (laughs) a runner up. Um, Its entries date from 1862 to 1880, so kind of outside of the general scope of our aviation history collecting. Um, The backstory about this item is that it belonged to this guy, Atwood, who was an interior decorator in New England during the mid to late 1800s. He was also a self-taught artist, and his art mostly focused on ships and other nautical themes. His ledger is what you would expect from a ledger. It contains a lot of random notes about uh, aspects of Atwood's day-to-day life that were relevant to him. There are cash account records and notes on his art projects. There's a list of fish prices at the local fish market, Um, (laughs) some poems and essays about the Civil War, just a real mishmash of stuff. And um, the Atwood Ledger is one of those things that you initially look at and say, why do we have this at the Museum of Flight? It's an interesting historical document, but, you know, at first blush, it doesn't seem to have anything to do with aviation. And the reason why we have it is because of some sketches that are at the very back of the ledger. It turns out that one of Atwood's interests was airships, and he drew some really amazing airship and balloon designs. 
And he also wrote an essay, which is in the ledger as well, called To Invent or Not to Invent, A Ship to Sail the Celestial Ocean. So um, yeah, this was the item that I picked to share on Instagram and to share on this podcast today. I really love the Atwood Ledger, and I know it's a favorite among a lot of people in the department. It's just so unique, and Atwood sketches are so amazing and fantastical and whimsical. I especially love the Neptune airship design, which is shaped (laughs) like a giant flying fish. Um, The art style is what we would now call retro-futuristic, but at the time the sketches were made, they were just futuristic, which is really cool. Um, I get get like Dinotopia from it for some reason. Yes, very much so. That kind of sketchbook um, with like scribbles all around it and writing. It does, yeah. It almost looks like some kind of historical depiction of something that actually existed, but it's just all from Atwood's imagination. Give the folks over at Pike Place Market a, a run for their money with our <laughs> flying sure, fish. sure, yes. You mentioned the ship drawing uh, below it. So on the Instagram post that you made, there's the there's the fish up above, and then there's what looks like a helicopter of sorts, uh, or an idea for a helicopter. Like a, a windmill turned sideways, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely sure how that would work. Uh, some kind of... Uh, propeller kind of design that would um you know propel the ship uh yeah i wish i knew what that was um it does look very much like a helicopter but i don't know if the fan is supposed to be vertically oriented or horizontally oriented in comparison to the fuselage quote unquote and this entire ledger is digitized Yes, it is. Um, It's obviously a very fragile item, as you would expect from something that's that old. The binding is coming apart and a lot of pages are loose. So we want to limit how much it's handled, which, you know, makes sense. But the good news is that it is completely digitized and it's available to view on our Digital Collections website, which is digitalcollections.museumoflight.org. If people want to dive into this flying fish and more, they can check it out. We invite you to because it deserves to be shared with the world. Well, thank you so much for your time, Allie. Yeah, of course. My name is Sarah Frederick. I'm the collections manager at the Museum of Flight. Um, And so that means I am in charge of taking care of our 3D object collection. So anything that is not a book, not a piece of paper, and not an actual aircraft is my responsibility. Can you describe the object that you picked out? Yes, so um, the object that I am featuring today is a small model of a Boeing B&W plane. And the model is inside a tiny glass bottle that is about seven inches long. Um, And the bottle is sealed with a cork. Um, And then also inside the bottle, um, there's a little, decorative blue gravel pattern at the bottom underneath the plane and then a little metal plaque describing what it is. Um, so the Boeing being BMW was a float plane. So I believe it is supposed to represent the plane landing on some water. It's such a little model. I know. It's <laughs> a little tiny baby model. So what? How? What? Why? Yes. I have so many questions. Tell me. That was my reaction also when I found this in our collection. Um, 
So my process for selecting things for our Instagram is very scientific and precise. I have a running list of weird, odd, or cool things that I come across in my daily work um, that um, are unlikely <laughs> to fit into any of our usual exhibit or programming plans. Um, and so this model I came across, I was rehousing um, a box of models to move um, to a new storage lo location um, on the other side of our campus. Um, so that process kind of involves opening up all of our box models, making sure that they are stable and safe um, and able to be moved across the street in a uh, relatively smooth manner. Um, and so I was opening up this box, kind of going through it, taking a look at what was inside, um, which involved kind of unwrapping a lot of things wrapped in tissue paper. And I found this little, tiny, adorable plane model in a bottle and was like, what? What is this thing? Why do we have it? What is going on? Um, yeah, so I did some kind of digging into it. Um, the model was built by a folk artist from the Northwest named Vic Crosby. Um, Vic Crosby was born in Seattle, um, but he later lived in uh, La Mesa, California. Um, so Crosby's, he, he was known for building various models inside of bottles. And that's fun to say. Um, he would carve these little tiny models using a pocket knife. Um, and then the cork stopper on each of these bottles would have a little detail that kind of related to the model. Um, so in this case, the model is a airplane tail. Um, which, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I so see it's, it there. It, it's on the in, inside of the bottle. Um, yeah. And it's just, I don't understand how models in bottles work. Like, I just don't know how anybody could do that. Um and then that quirk detail is like blowing my mind. So this is one of many models in our collection. Yeah. So we have um, over 2,500 models in the collection. Um, wow. <laughs> most of them are not this small. Um, most of them are not in bottles. Um, most and most, <laughs> most of them are not made by folk artists. Um, the bulk of our model collection, um, it's made up of kind of uh, professional grade, models, um, both scratch built and kit models. Um, and then we also, of course, have a lot of manufacturer models um, from various airplane and uh, kind of space space companies. So that's another thing that makes this little tiny baby model stand out. Um, it's a very, very unique piece. Um, so I was glad to give it its uh, time in the sun. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. No problem. Jen, tell me what you do at the Museum of Flight. I am currently the project archivist for the William P. and Moya Olson Lear Papers, which is a grant-funded project for the next two years. Jen, describe what we're looking at in this photo. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an unusual photo. Um, it's a gentleman wearing a bell rocket belt with a child's doll on the back. Um, and the doll's face is actually, uh, to add another level of weirdness, covered in plastic for some reason. <laughs> so by rocket belt, it appears to be somewhere between a jetpack and uh, a scuba tank almost, it looks like. It's, it's an interesting combination. Yeah, it was um, like a low power propulsion um, device. 
And it's actually quite a famous belt. Um, many people have probably seen it. I mean, it doesn't tour anymore, but when it was being promoted, it toured all over the place. Um, and in fact, it spurred imagination of many people. Um, and there's another book about, or a book about it that, um, the design of the Bell Rocket Belt, the original one actually inspired these other guys later to design their own. And it turned into like really contentious situation. And um, it, it gets really messy, but it's got a kind of like a fascinating, um, the original part is really fascinating, you know, the Bell Rocket Belt itself. But um, I think it's actually still on display somewhere. I'm not 100%. You say that it toured. So mm -hmm. what was the purpose of this thing? Were they trying to sell it to everyday people or to military? Or? It was originally um, developed for the military as a like, well, they called it a man rocket, which no thanks, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they wanted to use it for soldiers essentially. Right. Um, but fuel was really the biggest issue. Um, it's very hard. It takes a special kind of fuel which was very expensive and like it only could like it had limited power even with the fuel it can only hold so much fuel because it's a it's a small canister on your back right so it had kind of limited usage um so the military wasn't super jazzed about it um and they basically then moved on to other things and the rocket belt project itself was like discontinued but um it kind of became a novelty and did events for example, performing at Super Bowls or at the Olympics. Um, this particular rocket belt was actually used in a James Bond movie. I was going to say, I think uh, mm -hmm. I think it also shows up in a Bond film. Yes. So, like you said, if the rocket belt isn't enough. Having a, oh, looks like a two or three foot tall doll. So right. not a small doll. Yeah. Doing her best Jackie Onassis impression with this, uh, like plastic scarf just hanging on the back of it yeah it's kind of an odd photo right like um <laughs> so just a tiny bit more background i actually found this photo completely alone in a folder like just an unlabeled folder it was in a box it probably fell out of something and fell into the folder um so the only thing on the fold on the photo is a stamp that says bell you know aero systems so I was like, what is happening? <laughs> this photo is bizarre <laughs> and I have no context. And it was just like, it stuck in my brain. Um, and so one day I decided to talk about it at a, an event we were doing. Um, and it turns out we actually have a rocket belt pilot's manual in our library written by the, one of the original rocket belt pilots, um, which is how I learned a lot about it. Um, but he's actually still alive. And I emailed him because he has a website and I was kind of emailed him on a whim, hoping that he could provide context. And I thought, well, his website hasn't been updated since 2014. And this photo I found in 2019, that's five years. And you know, he was probably getting up there in age. So I thought it's a long shot. I'll never hear from anybody. He replied like an hour later. It was amazing um, with context. So that's how I found out that the actual photo is Robert Corder who is one of the original rocket belt pilots is on the is flying the rocket belt in the hangar, but on a tether because they're testing, checking out any possible hazards to carrying a passenger. Um, and this was because that was going to be used in lost in space episodes where they flew with a passenger being rescued. Um, and the 
Apparently the plastic face wrap was to protect the doll, which was borrowed from another employee's daughter, um, from receiving damage. (laughs) (laughs) If there was a leak from the 90% peroxide, I find that funny because I'm like, I don't think plastic's gonna make a difference, but sure, it was a nice effort. Um, So yeah, that was filmed in 1964, if I'm recalling what he told me, um, in December prior to the actual filming of the episode of Lost in Space that it was used in. So it was really fun to actually talk to an actual rocket belt pilot and then actually get context on a photo that I didn't think I would have context on to begin with. Hi, I'm Sharice Mickelson. I'm the project archivist for the Model Rocketry Collections. Yeah, well, why don't you tell me, so what you shared on Instagram is a series of a couple of photos, and mm-hmm. and, and they seem to be connected to a larger story also of, of identification of people in these photos, too. Yes. So the ones that I chose um, to highlight were um, a series of photos, and they're from different meets. The meets range from the late 1950s to the early 1970s, and they show various individuals preparing model rockets for send-off and award ceremonies. And the images really illustrate the fun and connection between everyone who participated in the events. Um, Like I mentioned, they're related to G. Harry Stein. He's known as the old rocketeer, and he established the the roots of model rocketry in the United States, and he was a major advocate for the hobby. He wrote the Handbook of Model Rocketry and was paramount in creating safety standards that furthered the popularity. Um, And the popularity grew out of the 1950s due to the space race. And it was kind of a not very safe hobby initially, but he (laughs) (laughs) really worked hard on creating those standards. And NAR was the National Association of Rocketry was part of that. Can imagine you talk to you talk to people who were kids back then and, and oh yeah the things they did to yeah. launch rockets <laughs> yes definitely and some that like are very excited like there we have the camrock that actually would take photographs when it was in sky and we had um, someone that worked at the museum who I mentioned that specific rocket to them and they remembered you know shooting it up and trying to get the film you know ready to go and seeing the aerial photographs when it was done and the excitement he had so yeah there's a lot of people that are very passionate still and um, excited about yeah their childhood connection to it so and that's where the NAR comes in it's one of the largest and oldest space modeling organizations um, with members around 7,000 and many different affiliated clubs across the U.S. And so like you mentioned earlier that yes it was a there's a bigger story to all this. We posted these um, different images from the NAR meets on Instagram various times to kind of promote a crowdsourcing project that we were working on where we were asking, we selected about 190 unidentified photographs of individuals and rockets. We digitized them and we put together a Flickr site. We had it open and available to the public. Um, Most of the people that commented on it were NAR members, but they went through and they helped us identify members and it really promoted the collection as well. And it was a really, I think, a a huge success and it actually is still open 
and available. We, uh, we started where it was going to be a short-term thing, but because it was so successful and the NAR members contacted us and asked us if we could keep it going, we have. What role do those kinds of crowdsourced knowledge projects, I know other museums have done things like that too. Uh, what role do they have in museums? Well, it just really allows the collection to be more open to people. I think that it allows for more of a historical record, obviously. Those people are part of it. Like you have the individual name. It's not just like a general, you know, this is what happened, but these are the people that were there. So so it's multi-pronged then. It's not just mm-hmm. about gathering the information. It's also about letting people know, hey, this exists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and they get to see it. It was it was great to digitize it and let them know that it was there and it helps them connect and yeah, want to come in and use it for research. And, you know, so that's, it's, I think it was very successful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sharice. Yep. Hey, my name is Karen Bean. I'm the digitization specialist at the museum. I am in charge of digitizing the collections for preservation in the web. Tell me a little bit about the artifact you shared. Can you describe it? Yeah. So this is a mock pilot's license, <laughs> so it is not a real pilot's license for Robert H. Neely. Um, Robert Neely was a fighter ace during World War II. Uh, he flew with the fi- Flying Tigers. The, he picked this up actually before he was flying with the Flying Tigers. Um, it is from the Royal Annex in Honolulu. <laughs> and... Uh, it is definitely not your ordinary pilot's license. Most pilot's licenses don't have a big foaming mug of beer no, on the top no. of them. And they don't say down the hatch or drink and be merry for tomorrow you may die. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we know about Robert H. Neely? So Robert H. Neely uh, attended the University of Washington and then enlisted in the Navy in 1938, uh, where he earned his wings in 1939. Uh, in June of 1941, he was assigned to the Navy. He resigned from the Navy and joined the American Volunteer Group, also known as the Flying Tigers. See, so he earned his first air-to-air victory flying a Curtis P-40 on January 23, 1942. And he achieved ace status with his fifth converted victory on February 6, 1942. Now, this license, it looks like it's dated 1940, so... A little yep. bit earlier. Yeah, so this is when he was still serving in the Navy. He was on the USS Saratoga, and they were um, out at sea. And so he picked this up while still in the Navy. So this is before he joined the Flying Tigers. Where did this come from? I see it says Hawaii on it. Um, yeah, so it looks like it's a the Royal Annex. I believe it's a bar of some sort in Honolulu, Hawaii. <laughs> um <laughs> And it's, yeah, it's pretty much just a very comical pilot's, it's not really, it's more like, it's, it should just be read. So like when I first published this, I, I put a quote in there from, from that, the main text of the pilot's license. Um, And so it certifies that Robert H. Neely was, certifies that he is fully qualified as a first class pilot on the troubled seas of beverages. Has a complete knowledge of bars, knows all harbors where the biggest schooners can be unloaded, and is willing to do his share of emptying such schooners. Can steer a straight course for any bar, can sail an even keel, 
even keel when fully loaded and furthermore is entitled to rank of chief pilot on any vessel using beer, whiskey, gin, cognac, vodka, wines, or any mixture thereof. He's also recommended as a helmsman for young, beautiful, or old and battered hulks looking for a snug harbor to lay up in while waiting for storms to blow over. My, oh my. <laughs> yeah, and the art that goes along with it is is similar to what you might expect based yes. on, uh, on, yes. the, on the conversation, the beer, but also uh, I would go so far as to say stereotypical images of, of people, of Hawaiian and, natives yeah. in hula skirts and things like that definitely evoke something just looking at it yeah well and the reason i liked this so much is when i was scanning this collection in our finding aid it's just listed as pilot's license and so i (laughs) am just chugging along scanning items and i just assume it's another pilot's license which i have seen hundreds of in my time doing digitization Mm -hmm. and when i finally stopped and actually sat down and read the text is when i realized it was not actually a real pilot's license. And so it just, it made the rounds. I made sure everyone in my department saw it. Update that metadata. (laughs) Yes, definitely updated the finding aid, updated the metadata to make sure people didn't think it was a real pilot's license in any way. You know, you bring up a good point though, just about what things are named and and how that changes. I I was just, I'm I'm doing, writing an article for, for something and talking about this, how, how, in archives, this is why your work is so important too. Like things just exist. People have forgotten about them. They're under different names. People yep. might have had different names at different times in their life, and and uh, it can be tough to know what to look for. Even if you're a yeah. researcher, like you wouldn't know that this exists. Why would you want to look at this pilot's license? Uh, yeah, one of many. Yeah, that's what I love is finding in the collections I digitize is finding those little funny moments that. You know, when the person that donated the collection to us is thinking mostly of the seriousness of the collection, like my grandfather was a pilot in World War II, and this is his very serious collection. And then finding those little moments of like joy or hilarity always kind of just makes the collections a lot more personal as well and just makes them a little bit more fun. And definitely um, it demonstrates a side of military history that is often not talked about. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's it's fun, especially like in other collections where I see photos of them just playing around or having fun or just doing silly, silly things. It, it definitely breaks the, the the stigma of of wartime a little yeah. bit, which is nice. Well, Karen, thank you so much for sharing this today. You're welcome. My name is Chris Stanton. Um, I'm the supervisory librarian uh, here at the Museum of Flight uh, in the collections department. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm responsible for the museum's uh, library collection, uh, which includes uh, books, uh, periodicals, manuals, uh, research files, technical reports, uh, published material. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the item that you're talking about that you shared on the Instagram? Yeah, so um, so I'm sharing in particular. I'm sharing the Dunking Sense Manual uh, from published <laughs> in 1944 by the Aviation Training Division of the Office of the Chief of Naval Operations of the United States Navy. So published during during World War II, and this is just one of about 
20 uh, sense manuals uh, that we have in the library collection from from World War II. Uh, so they're essentially training manuals for, for naval aviators that I would say, I would describe them as dealing with difficult subjects in a lighthearted, simplified way uh, with um, kind of fanciful and fun illustrations. Um, so dunking sense in particular highlights and shows naval aviators how to how to um, ditch their airplane in the ocean and then how to do that safely and how to um, how to wait for ris- rescue uh, essentially. So everything about you know looking and and kind of trying to judge how you're going to land in the water, kind of what you do with your life raft, how to get that sorted, um, and, and everything, everything in between. Things like don't drink seawater uh, and and what to do with sharks. I wanted to highlight these because these have kind of been, these were um, brought to my attention from the very beginning. When I first started at the museum about four years ago, um, I had my director, Amy Heydrich, and other staff members um reminded me that these um, that these sense manuals uh, were really a delight and kind of like a staff and and patron favorite um, uh, just mostly because of the illustrations and the humor that's involved in them um, they also I think highlight quite nicely the type of training material that that um, both naval aviator naval naval um, cadets as well as Army Air Force uh, cadets were kind of working with um, as they as they learned to become aviators during this time a lot of it is very simple easy to understand you know they were they were being trained at a rapid clip um, a lot of them all at <laughs> once and maybe didn't have the education that that you might expect maybe from Air Force pilots and Navy pilots and marine pilots uh, today so it's kind of often at like a, a high school kind of level if not a little less um, and I think these kind of show that like very complicated topics. Well, thank you so much for sharing this object with us, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much, Sean. I really appreciate you um, having us on and, and getting to highlight some of these collections items. I'm Nicole Davis. I'm the supervisory archivist, so I oversee the archives team here, and we handle research collections and photographs and films and AV materials and all that sort of thing. Um, and I also oversee the digital projects or digitization efforts in our in our website. Speaking of digital, tell me a little bit about the item that you're talking about today. Um, so the item I chose um, are some kind of unusual photographic items. They're from the Willard P. Williams Lunar Orbiter Photograph Collection. Um, so these are physical items. They're made from several black and white transparency strips that are placed side by side. And when you see them in their positioning side by side, they form a whole image altogether. And so um, to keep the transparency strips in, in place, they've been sandwiched between two uh, sheets of acrylic or plexiglass that measure 24 by 30 inches. So they're fairly large. Mm. And the, the images that these transparency strips depict are high resolution images of the lunar surface um, as photographed by the first lunar orbiter mission, lunar orbiter mission um, from August 10th, 1966. Do you know why they would have to be in strips? The mission of the lunar orbiters was to document the, the surface of the moon um, in preparation for later Apollo mission landings. And so the 
lunar orbiters um, orbited the moon, and so they would have been photographing as they were traveling, and so they photographed, you know, in lines, and then would repeat in a neighboring line, and then a neighboring line, in order to get uh, high-resolution images um, that were detailed and comprehensive, and so then all the strips, when placed back together, could then recreate essentially an, an entire map of the, of the moon surface. Um, so they were done in strips so that they could be close enough to get high resolution images. It reminds me of, uh, I'm maybe making this memory up, but it reminds me of uh, like drawing, taking popsicle sticks and like gluing them together and then like drawing art on the side of them or something like that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of an unusual photographic method, something you don't see a lot of the time. Um, and when we these these images from the lunar orbiters have been reproduced a lot, they've been highly distributed. They're available easily if you search online. Um, but you see them in a more polished form, where the strips um, are not necessarily as visible. You might see a little bit of lines, or what looks to us now is like pixelation. Um, but when you see these objects now, the the original transparency strips have shifted a little bit over time within the plexiglass sandwich and you can see some some things that have gotten a little out of place or off kilter um, so when you see these actual original objects you get much more of a sense of of how these were made and uh, and you know the physicality of the object that you don't that you don't get when you see a scanned version um, of of these images so that's something that I that I really like about these is that um, the physical objects really give you a different sense of how these photographs were taken than you get when you see a scanned image online or a later reprint. Um, you know, we, we have digital photography today and digital photography is so prevalent. Everybody has a camera on their phone with them all the time, but that wasn't the case in the 1960s. Digital photography didn't exist at the time. So the process to photograph the lunar surface was fairly complicated. Um, so Boeing had teamed up with the Eastman Kodak Company um, to de design the process. They had cameras on board the orbiters. They, they had two lenses to take both a wide angle and high resolution images at the same time. And then it was film-based photography. So the film had to be developed on board robotically. Um, then they then the images had to be scanned. Then they had to be transmitted back to Earth. And then they had to be reprinted here on Earth, um, and that's what these objects are. That's what these transparencies are. These are the prints that um, that were printed when the when the scanned images were received. Um, so the the donor of the collection, um, Bill Williams, he worked for Boeing, and he was stationed in Australia, where there was one of these receiving stations. Um, so he was the person who was receiving these images for the first time. Um, you know, developing them printing them out, uh, reconstructing these images that the lunar orbiter was taking and getting to be, you know, one of the first people to see these really high resolution images. Um, and the lunar orbiters themselves eventually crashed into the moon. And so those original photographs, the original film that the lunar orbiters took um, are, are gone. They've, they've crashed and been destroyed. And so, so these objects, these transparency strips are really the closest thing we have to the original photographs taken by the orbiters. So Again, yeah, I just love the physicality of these objects, that they're really big and bulky, these, you know, 24 by 30 inch um, plexiglass uh, things with these strips in them. And seeing them really gives you, helps you 
imagine being in the position of Bill Williams when he was receiving them. And you can imagine um, having that experience of, of getting these high resolution images for the first time and, and seeing something no one had seen before, um, which I think is, is something that you lose with, with the more polished uh, reproductions out there. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Special thanks to those of you who've donated to the podcast financially this year. You've made this particular episode especially possible in more ways than one, as your gift both supports this podcast project and also the archiving and digitizing activities that you heard about here today. Those who wish to become a donor can do so at museumofflight.org slash podcast by clicking on the yellow donate button. Now, as I said at the top of the episode, I've collected all the links to the various objects described in this episode in the show notes. So if you want to see these things, you can find those show notes at museumofflight.org slash podcast. And in addition, I hope you'll follow at TMOF Collections, that's T-M-O-F Collections, on Instagram to get more content like this. If you want more podcasts about our collections, I'd recommend listening to the Collections mini-series from last year, where we talked about the smallest, the biggest, the youngest, and the oldest objects in our collection. Several of the people you heard from today also make starring appearances in those episodes. And I'll include those links in the show notes. Now, the Museum of Flight's archives are here for you. Whether you're an academic researcher, a kid with a school project, or just someone who is curious, our collection exists for you. We get inquiries with questions from folks all over the world, and we are happy to help. If you've got a curiosity about anything in space exploration or aviation, no matter how small you might think it is, send us an inquiry. I'll include a link to the Research Center in the show notes. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you downloaded us from. If you know someone who'd be interested in these quirky stories, send them a link, share the show. And of course, you can contact me at podcast at museumofflight.org. Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks. <laughs>